Heat and extreme climate events impact our personal health and the well-being of our communities in ways that many of us may not be aware of. Exploring these impacts and fully understanding the issues at hand help to develop personal and societal resilience. How does the power of storytelling help us understand climate change and inspire action toward building community resilience? We have the opportunity to spend time with a woman who is leading the way of connecting science and storytelling. You will want to stay with us, trust me. I'm Gina Murphy-Darling, and this is Impact Earth Health and Wellness. And we are going to be talking about climate and health. This show made possible due to the generous support of Tucson Medical Center. TMC has been Tucson's locally governed nonprofit regional hospital for more than 75 years. And I personally cannot say enough good stuff about this great institution. I don't think I can get more excited about anything. (laughs) So get ready to hear some powerful and amazing stories as told by our guest today. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Sabrina McCormick, who is an associate professor at George Washington University. And Sabrina, it's great to have you here. And I just want to say a little bit more about you, if you can handle that. (laughs) Yeah, thank you so much. It's great to be here. And uh, say whatever you like. I will, because I, I like our audience to know you about as much as I do, because I know you a lot more than I did several days ago. So in her work, Sabrina fuses sociology, public health, and filmmaking. More specifically, her research investigates social dynamics of environmental health. And trust me when I say she is an amazing storyteller, and I believe she will delight and inform us as she shares some stories about her work. Sabrina, it really is wonderful to have you here to talk with about issues that are so near and dear to my heart, like marginalized community, especially women, and how climate change is impacting them every day. So that's what we're going to have you do. Tell us stories about interconnectedness of health and climate and your focus on extreme heat. And I I was telling you a little bit before we got on the air and started recording, I just want you to start telling your story a little bit about how you got, as a scientist, excited and interested in marrying storytelling with science. It's really, Mm. really matters so people can understand it and relate to it. Well, I mean, I have to be honest that the only reason I really got involved in work around health rather than just straight environment was I felt like health resonates most with people and their their self-interest. And so even from the origin of starting my PhD when I was 25, I I was seeking ways to get people to understand at the most intimate level that the environment affects them in really literally every single second of every day. And I, um, undergrad, I had a degree in both um, sociology, psychology, sociology, and um, studio arts. And so I was really on the fence about whether to pursue storytelling in, in the in the realm of filmmaking or um, to pursue a more academic career. And I, I pursued the academic career only with the promise to myself that I would meld the two. Um, and so I 
I guess I began my first documentary a couple of years into grad school in Brazil when I was working on um, energy policy and deforestation there. And just always having a, an interest in and a commitment to making what we know about the environment in the, in the research world, in the academic world, in the scholarly world, um, come to life in a way that would motivate people to take it seriously. Um, because I really don't believe in scholarship that is only in words. I believe in scholarship that makes a real difference in the world. But it, it but it's hard. It's hard because it's, you know, we publish in journals that people can't even access, which is so frustrating to me. And so, you know, that's driven me to to make all different kinds of media, but mainly um, documentary and scripted media in order to try to help people understand the complexities of our, our scholarly knowledge and what it means to them. So what I think is interesting, I'm like, I have this big old grin on my face as I'm sitting here because it's people like you that inspired my journey. And I say that hmm. so sincerely. I was in the middle of the Amazon rainforest and I was with people that had incredible stories to tell. And then I, <clears throat> I came out and wanted to tell the story of the impacts of the devastating, the devastating impacts of the rainforest. But what I wanted to do was create a platform to do exactly what you said, hmm. make science understandable, make it relatable, make people get it. And I, about, I don't know, two years ago, I read this long article about how statistics and facts and data don't change people's minds if their mind is made mm -hmm. up. But yep. you're living proof. Storytelling does. Tell me a story. Tell me about your personal experience. And I find things that will relate to it. So the next question for me is, you studied how stories affect audiences. Mm -hmm. That matters to me a lot. Does it really motivate behavioral change when it comes to climate change? Why does yeah. it work? Yeah, I mean, so that's a whole slice of my research has been for, uh, man, at least five years. And that came out of having done, you know, years and years of film production and wanting to know, was all my effort and really hard work and sacrifice, was it doing anything? Was it making any different difference whatsoever? And so... Um, you know, I had been a producer on the Years of Living Dangerously, which had won the Emmy for Best um, Nonfiction Series that year, and um, had produced a story about heat waves based on my research about heat um, starring Matt Damon. And, um, you know, one of the foundations that had funded this very big production had the same questions I had, which was, you know, did our investment or our philanthropy, did it get us anywhere? Did it move the needle? And so a team um, at George Washington University and myself conducted what I do think is the largest study to date of any climate change um, communication effort. We had six different methodological arms. Um, and we it was such a big study that I, I could spend days, not just this time with you, uh, explaining the findings. But... Um, to answer your question most simply, yes, it can move the needle, um, but there are certain things that work and certain things that don't. Um, so 
just to highlight at a high level some of the things that um, I found so interesting. So our samples, uh, our, our study samples, the people we talked to or surveyed or interviewed, um, they ranged across political parties, so Republican, Independent, and Democrats. And as we know in the United States and many other countries, uh, climate change has become incredibly politicized and divisive. And um, most of the stories we looked at and we were looking at audience responses to really did call out climate change specifically. And we found that if you tell a good story, a good story in which um, audiences are what we call transported, so narrative transportation is the the concept that an audience gets so sucked in that they forget who they're watching, you know, who they are, what they are. They're just like really in it, right? And what we found is that even um, if a story is really effectively transportive, if the story is really good, that the political divide between Democrats and Republicans, those being the most uh, distant from each other, it essentially collapses. So Democrats and Republicans end up feeling the same way about the issue if it's a good story, which was pretty a pretty huge finding. And I think continues to be something that as a storyteller, I aspire to, you know, well, how do I get people to forget about this as a you know, as an issue and just let themselves get emotionally involved. And, you know, that was another key finding um, was the importance of emotions and the recognition that emotions, as you begin to reference there, maybe are more important than facts and figures, which, you know, as a scholar and a scientist, I I hate to think that facts don't matter. I think they do matter. They but do. I think they, they have, have to. to. Yeah, but they have to be a part of a story with characters with whom we resonate and who have an emotional poignancy that draws us in and with whom we have that catharsis that we have when we watch a great story and the transformation of a character. So, um, you know, but you have to be careful with what emotions you invoke when you tell a story about climate change because probably your listeners know or have felt that climate change can be extremely frightening and really kind of, you know, unroot you the if you fully comprehend the massive ramifications it is already having for our day-to-day life and will have even into the immediate future. You have to be careful with that because you can demobilize people, disengage them, and get them to kind of tune out because it's just too much. And what we found was that people really want to know what to do. Um, people who, even people who care, most of them feel like they don't know what to do. And now I think actually what's underneath that is they might have some sense of what to do, but they don't feel empowered to do it. Totally. And what we have to engender is a sense of collective efficacy, is all of us working together can move the needle because climate change is such a big issue. So those are some of the some of the things that I found really interesting about that study. Well, it makes it makes me think of two things which I am sure will crack you up. There's the inconvenient truth story. Do you want to mm-hmm. know how hard it was for me to watch that movie? It was so mm. long and so boring and so important. Oh no. I'm oh, sorry. No. Oh, and I oh, love no. Al Gore. I love yep. his work. Maybe Maybe it was painful, but it was so data-filled and mm-hmm. great. Thank God for the images, and I've gone to his climate reality training. I mean, 
he talk about an early ad, ad, adopter who took it in the shorts for being that voice. I mean, it was terrible. Yeah. And then the other one is Avatar, which you don't even want to know how many times I've watched that movie because it's such <laughs> a metaphor for what the reality is. You know, we want to kill that yeah. tree that is the tree of life or, you know, the well, planet can or whatever. I say yes, don't be mad story, at me for saying that about no, no, truth. <laughs> no, not at all. So that story, Avatar, what I understand, so James Cameron, the director and writer of Avatar, was an executive producer on the Years of Living Dangerously. Right. Um, and so I didn't get to know him, but what I understand, what I heard was that that story was inspired by the construction of the Belomanchi Dam, which is now the world's fourth largest dam. And it's in Brazil, it's in the Amazon. Oh, and that is the, that is the dam that is the centerpiece of my film, Sequestrada, which is a fictional film featuring indigenous people and American actors um, that we shot and we released in uh, winter of 2019, right before COVID hit. So, you know, Avatar and I have a kind of a, a funny um, uh, connection. We were really inspired by the same thing. So it makes me hope, and, and I, t- I tell the story on the air and I was reluctant at first to tell it, but I'm fully transparent, radically transparent. When I went on my second long trip to the Amazon rainforest in Ecuador, I did a journey with ayahuasca. And, you know, people want me to tell them about it and what it was like. And I said, are you ready for this? It was Avatar. Mm -hmm. I closed my eyes. Everything was in neon colors. I got so many affirmations for the work I'm doing. And then I opened my eyes and the sky was filled with all of those beautiful images. And the medicine Mm -hmm. man that I worked with had a very interesting and affirming interpretation of that. I mean, it it's it really got to me. It got into my into my being. So let's not get Hmm. let's not get sidebarred what happened to Gina in the Amazon. Oh, <laughs> sounds interesting, it's, though. <laughs> it was. Oh, my goodness. It was interesting. It's a story that I love telling. So I'm not sure if this is the right segue, but I think it is. Because, like you said, you've done a lot and you're in different arenas and get in he- in people's heads in different ways, which is such a good thing. So you have studied how science is used in climate change lawsuits. And when I read that, I've been doing this for 14 years, and it was like, OMG, how interesting. So can you tell us a little bit about that journey, and how did you ever even think to do it? Because it certainly tells you a lot. Well, I mean, most of, I think most of my work is actually inspired that by something that happened to me as a child, which um, I wrote about in my book, No Family History, um, briefly, uh, and, and, you know, maybe this is true of most of us, you know, we're so formed as kids, but I grew up in um, in Georgia, and when I was eight, uh, my home was, um, we just had an infestation of powder post beetles, or kind of like termites, and my mother had the house sprayed, and uh, afterwards, she started feeling sick, and um, she took a chunk of a beam in the house and had it tested and discovered that the house had been sprayed with what had recently become an illegal chemical um, called chlordane, which had been used to the tune of billions on crops in the United States. But they had recognized, actually the Air Force had recognized that it was toxic, it it had neurological toxicity to it. Um, 
and had pushed Congress to outlaw it, it had become outlawed, but had been kind of dumped off in our house and probably many houses across the country. And that experience and the kind of what I deemed the inadequacy of um, our political system, our regulatory system to protect human health from all of these toxics um, really has, I think, been the foundation of all my work on environment and environmental health. But at that time, my mother uh, took the company that did this to court. And, you know, it's just my mom. It wasn't like, you know, just one woman. Right, it uh, wasn't like a class action lawsuit. <laughs> exactly. Um, although apparently that is happening now. So I'm not sure if it's class action, but a much bigger lawsuit is happening now. Um, and... She took them to court and she was advised to settle out of court saying, you know, she wouldn't win. And so she did. And we got something like $80,000. We lost our home, all of its contents. And obviously that $80,000 didn't cover that or the potential of any future health effects of that exposure. And so... I think that question, um, you know, was put a seed in my mind of like, does the court make any difference to protect us. And then when I, um, so my first academic job was uh, at Michigan State University. And then I, um, when Obama went into office, I really wanted to work under Obama on climate change. So I left academia, which everybody told me I was crazy, but I never looked back. I mean, I went back to academia, but I was so happy I'd made that decision. But um when I landed in at EPA at the Environmental Protection Agency, um, the Supreme Court case, Massachusetts versus EPA, had just been completed, um, and had the decision was about the regulation of greenhouse gases under the Clean Air Act, and it had sent EPA back into its um, to into to its science to assess whether or not greenhouse gases. What were a threat to health and well-being, which EPA did find they were, and the endangerment finding was released the exact same year that I landed at EPA. And when I learned of that case, I started to really think more about this question of, well, what role does the do the courts play in climate change and protecting our health and protecting our well-being? You know, is my childhood experience reflective of others or is it actually a powerful third branch of our government to do something about this massive crisis that we face? So I started this um, research project funded by National Science Foundation to really answer that question. And we looked at, we um, built a database really founded on a um, on a, a tracking system database at Columbia University Sabin Center for Law, um, to which we are very grateful. So we, we, we created a database characterizing all the lawsuits to date uh, about climate change, the kind of science it used, the topic of the, the, the lawsuit, biodiversity or clean air or you know, renewable energy, or, you know, we had a bunch of categories, um, who was bringing the case, who was the defendant, who won, who lost. And we did a, a, a quite a big analysis that was published in Science and Nature Climate Change in the American Journal of Public Health. We still have publications under review at various places now um, and to begin to answer some of those questions. So are you going to, from what I read, and I get very 
gun shy sometimes. I don't want to use that term actually. I get very reluctant to to bring forth information from bios because they're not always updated. And someone will mm. say, "Oh, well, that you know, that's long gone." Blah blah blah. But this was what you what it said is the most important environmental Supreme Court case in history. And it was Massachusetts. Was it versus the EPA or yes? What, so how did that work? Did you end up working together with them, or was it very adversarial? I just like to know a little bit more about the deep dive of what that looked like, because it obviously was really, really important for all of us. Yeah. So I didn't work on that case. Um, the case was decided in 2007. Okay. The case was brought against the Bush EPA. Got it. Um, and so Massachusetts led about 20 litigants, um, mainly states and NGOs, to say to EPA, you need to decide if you think greenhouse gases are a pollutant to be regulated <laughs> oh under the Clean Air Act. <laughs> it, I mean, it's outrageous, oh, right? It's outrageous. Yes, like, really? Wow. Yeah. So it is. It's the most, as ranked by American litigators, it is the most important environmental Supreme Court case in U.S. history. And I would say one of the most important Supreme Court cases, considering it is the reason that we act on climate change as a nation. It is the reason, essentially, that Obama was able to engage with China in passing the Paris Accord. It is the reason that Obama was able to pass the methane um, standard. And now Biden has brought that back, which is one of the most important policies, climate policies that has happened in contemporary history. Without this case, we would not have all these electrical electric vehicles emerging on the market as we see them today. Because what the case claimed was, this is great, it's really kind of a crazy claim in a sense. Massachusetts said, look, the 6% of global greenhouse gas emissions being caused by American transport, American cars and trucks, is causing sea level rise in the state of Massachusetts and that they were going to lose shoreline and be damaged by these greenhouse gas emissions. And therefore, they had the right, they had standing to bring this case that would they should be able to win it to protect their coastlines from further damage. And so really all Massachusetts was saying was, hey, EPA, you got to decide if you, want, uh, if you want to regulate this or not, because you're just standing around doing nothing right now. So they took that to the Supreme Court after literally eight years. It took, the, the case was initiated by a litigator nobody's heard of, no offense to him because he is brilliant, Joe Mendelson, and a tiny little organization that he ran. And then it came, I mean, it went, took eight years to get it to the Supreme Court and, and they won. Thank God for all of us. So all I can say is like you breathe a sigh of relief and you just wonder why that's what it takes to make everybody understand. Right. And I was just reflecting when I was getting ready for the show about what things were like for me 14 years ago. I had a career in mental health and working with at-risk children and families. Mm. And the irony there that I'm sure you will see is that it just brought me full circle because yeah, at-risk populations are hit hardest, first, longest, vulnerable population, which are usually black and brown women with small children. So it's it was part of my preparation for this journey and for me getting my voice out there and helping to get people like you, your voice out there. 
also interesting to me is the story about the 25 Colombian children who bought a climate lawsuit against their own government and won. Are you in production on that feature film? Where are we with that? Because look at what children are doing to say, enough, enough, you're not protecting us. You know, we can all talk about Greta, but there there are lots of Gretas. She just does it really well. So what what is that, not just about the lawsuit, but is it just something that we can, is it a beacon of hope that find your voice and it can be heard? Yeah, so that is a film that um, we have early stage funding for uh, the documentary version. And we were about going to production when COVID hit. Uh, and yeah. that is in the country of Colombia. These 25 children live and brought that lawsuit. And the situation with COVID has been so bad that we haven't been able to go into production. We thought we were going to about, I guess four months ago or so. And then it, you know, I guess it was the Delta that kicked back in and stopped us from being able to do that. So we're kind of on hold waiting for that. We, I have a producer collaborator who lives in Bogota and we're waiting for that situation to be tenable production wise. Um, but it, you know, it's a great story. Um, I think that to me, the most interesting part, well, I'll tell you what the, what the story is about. So, these 25 children were brought together by a litigating team um, across the country of Colombia to bring this case that argues that the Amazon should be protected from climate change because if it isn't, this Colombia will make a the country of Colombia will make a huge further contribution to climate change, and this violates. Um, what's called the public trust. So the public trust doctrine basically says that we, our generations who are adults, should be leaving the earth, or, or uh, I don't know if it's just the earth, actually, I'm really not a lawyer, um, <laughs> yeah. but should at least be leaving the earth in, in a, as a public trust to the next generations in, in a state that they can use, in a state that supports their well-being, their livelihoods, et cetera. And so they brought this case, and uh, they not only won, they won um, to the degree that the Supreme Court of Colombia made the argument, or it's not even an argument, Supreme Court, right? They, they made the decision that a tree should be given the same status as a human being in terms of pr protection to it and threats to it. Um, and so now the Amazon should be much more protected. Having said that, all of these lawsuits, which I do think are critical, the enforcement of the lawsuit is just as important, important right. as the lawsuit right. itself. And so we don't see the enforcement in Colombia the way that we need to, and we see continued deforestation, not just there, but also obviously in the Brazilian Amazon. So you know, even Mass versus EPA, like these suits, they get, the decisions get made and it's like, wow, this is a huge success and we're really helping. And yes, those decisions are critical, but what happens next? And like what steps are taken to actually execute that suit, enforce that suit, make sure that decision gets upheld. That's, those things are just as important. And, and important to follow because you're right. And in those countries, you know, you were talking about 
it's hard doing this work. It is hard for me. And there are days when I think about um, maybe I'll start taking a sewing class or start knitting or <laughs> right. uh, maybe I'll learn how to paint and maybe I'll semi-retire. But to me, when no. you're in the middle of rainforest, and you kind of get a message from Mother Earth to go back and use your voice. It's not like you, you just don't take a vacation. I am the person you don't want at your party if you're using plastic bottles and plastic cups and, and all this <laughs> exactly. throwaway stuff. But I, I want to go back for a minute because my story as it relates to what you're doing is there's a professor at the university named Dr. Greg Garfin. And about four years ago, he invited me to this dinner and it was meeting women from El Paso, doulas and midwives and working with pregnant women and the impact of extreme heat in El Paso for women that had no access to cooling, sometimes no access to clean, cool water. And I would love you to tell us a little bit about you found that um, the, we're not even getting the truth about how significantly higher heat impacts people. Maybe not the truth, maybe nobody's looking at it. But tell us a little bit about what you found. That was, you have long studied the effects of these things. What can you tell us about women who are marginalized? And I, I don't even like that word. They are poor, they don't have resources. They don't have anything that I have every single day in my life. What is the impact of extreme heat and the risks? And, and is anything being done about it? So that's a 50-part question. You get it. Well, you know, and you, I, don't have, I, I don't have answers to all the parts, but I, I, I have some, some answers. Tell us um, what you did and what you learned. Yeah, so... I've worked on heat for a long time, and uh, as we are seeing now, because I started this work on heat, oof, at least I think 15 years ago now, uh, so what we are seeing now is that the temperature, the the heat is moving up a lot faster than we expected it to, and Therefore, these extreme heat events like we saw this past summer, and we will continue to see more of, so more frequent, longer, and more severe. Right. Um, they really do affect our health. They affect our productivity. They affect our mental health. They affect our stress and anxiety. I mean, there's just such a you ubiquitous effect of, and, and really kind of unexamined effect of, of heat on, on our well-being as, as human beings. Um, and maybe actually I shouldn't say unexamined, but I would say the public generally is not very well informed about them, which is part of the reason why I made this episode that I referenced before about heat on, um, extreme heat events on our health. So, you know, one of the things that I found early in my research is that the number of people who we think die from heat waves is actually much higher than is reported. And I won't get into the mechanics of why that underreporting exists, but that's kind of the journey we sent Matt Damon on was to investigate right. why, right. Uh, you know, we think it's 200 people and it's actually, you know, a thousand. Um, so, you know, there's an underestimate, underestimate, 
estimation of the number of people who are dying. There's also generally a lack of understanding of the morbidity of heat on human health, so how it affects many different of our internal systems. And this is particularly poignant for pregnant women um, and particularly potent and important for women, as you say, who do not have access to the resources that they need to support their health and well-being while, while being pregnant. Because what we found in our research on the threats of heat to pregnant women is that exposure to heat at different periods of a pregnancy can result in a number of different outcomes. So um, increased um uh, infant mortality even, that's kind of the worst outcome, increased right. miscarriage, increased um, early delivery, which obviously has lifelong effects for totally. a fetus and then an adult yeah. and is, I mean, not to be gross about it, but is extremely expensive at a population level. And so, you know, I, as a storyteller, I'm always thinking about, well, how do we help people understand this really is on an emotional level? And this is extremely poignant to me, but also it has pretty dramatic effects for our healthcare system, for our economy, for our communities. Um, and, and then, you know, to your question about is something being done about this, that I haven't done research on. I will just say anecdotally that it appears to me that in our heat health and warning systems and I think it's both in the U.S. and internationally, we really are not focusing on or highlighting the threats of heat to pregnant women and fetuses. Um, I think that's an oversight that needs to be really uh, concretely uh, corrected. Um, And I think pregnant women need to be better educated about how to protect themselves from that heat um, because it's, it's their health and the health of the fetus. So I think it's a it's a gap that we still need to be working working hard on. It couldn't be more true. What you said, I mean, it, I'm sitting here thinking people, we really have to get this. And one of the things like I'm I'm well into notes on my second book and I, I don't want it to be called this, but it's like so this makes me a democrat because I don't want it to be political, so I better think of another name. But what you're saying in almost everything you've reflected on is we're all in this together and Mm -hmm. we all pay at some point or we all win at some point and we've got to get out of the conversation that it's a political issue because climate change could give a rat's ass about if you're a Democrat or Republican, the water comes, the fires come, the extreme heats co- comes, and there's no political divide. No, you know, there's protection. The richer you are, the less likelihood it is that you're going to be impacted. But the point will come when it, we're all feeling it. And and I live in Tucson, Arizona, so I can be one hmm. of your, <laughs> I can be one of your research subjects that says heat impacts me greatly and I'm tired of it and I want to move because of it. So it's going to be 102 to 104 every day this week in September and I'm just sick of it. I don't want to go out, but I have an air conditioner. I have air conditioning in my car. I can drive to where it's air conditioned. And in my community, I'm working on more cooling centers. And I think some big cities are working on that. Like where can people go when this extreme heat comes that they will be safe and taken care of and the electricity won't go out because there's generators. So it's just, 
it's such a big deal. And you are so right. It is not being talked about, written about, brought up enough. Um, and of course, my stick is, is because it's under, <laughs> underrepresented populations in the, in the American voice. So that's my bias. Um, yeah, and actually, that's one of the reasons why I did this piece, uh, this research on the on pregnant women, is I have felt like our, our the way that we generally think about the threats of heat has been well, it's it's poor, it's only for poor people, it's only for black people, you know, in this kind of like racist way of thinking about what matters and. The truth, I mean, it is that there is there are geospatially distributed risks of heat in American cities. They heat does much more greatly affect poor people and people of color. That's just the way that our our neighborhoods are laid out, and that has to be fixed. In addition to that, when you think about pregnant women, you think about even a wealthy white pregnant woman. She, I mean, as as you talk about your own experience with air conditioning, you know, wealthier people have more access to air conditioning. But I'll tell you, our grid is not prepared generally for the risks of extreme heat. And when we, as what we saw in the 2003 heat wave in Western Europe, the grid gave out and then everybody is exposed and there is nowhere to turn. And that's what climate change is. Even now, there is nowhere to turn. We are in this together. You know, there's there are billionaires building, you know, their escapes, quote unquote, in New Zealand. Go ahead. You know what? But you, there's nowhere to go. Right. So you can either run, you but you can't hide. In. You can't. Yeah, you can't. There's no hiding. There's more just more no hiding. Yeah, yeah. So I have a question about, because you have been doing this for quite some time, I, when they, you know, the report came out from the UN that we're in code red. I'm getting a little cynical, I admit it. And I'm like, wow, really? Now, code red? I thought that was happening 20 years ago, which by the way, it was. Mm -hmm. The good news about that is there is a lot more increased coverage in the mainstream media about climate change. Um, I, I would say it's hard to ignore when people are drowning in the subways in New York and the entire Western United States is seems to be on fire. My son-in-law is a firefighter in California and he's got job security, trust me. And then the other piece of it is the, just the reality of it's so, it's so being brought to the, to the attention of people because of the extreme weather. Is it helping from what you see? Is it helping people be more aware, more engaged, more inspired to act? What do you see, not just for people, but government and business? I mean, you, you've you been interviewed by every major media outlet that I can think of, maybe, well, at least in our country and, and in part of the world. What are you seeing about the increased coverage? Because, I mean, last year <laughs> we got the coverage of the wildfires, but now there's a lot more about climate change in general. What do, what do you think is happening as mainstream media is is more exposed to the reality. I mean, I think it's great that there's increased coverage. You know, denial ain't just a river in Egypt, right? Like getting a conversation. <laughs> oh my God, style. I haven't heard that in a while. I love it. <laughs> I know, me neither. I love it. I'm glad it popped out. <laughs> um, 
you know, having increased coverage is just like starting a conversation, right? And keeping a conversation going on an issue um, in the media is hard to do. And I think it, it can really help push people's thinking. Having said that, I do think often, and I, I think we're seeing this now, the media falls into the trap of, okay, there's a big event and there's a fire and it's sensational and it's gut-wrenching and, and it creates a sense of urgency. But what we are missing and what we need a lot more of is the solutions that are in play. They exist. They're happening. There are people behind them. And, you know, this goes back to my research on what works when it comes to storytelling. Um, and we are actually furthering that research um, with another study right now. You can't just tell people what the problem is if you want them to do something. You have to show have them to. that the solutions to. are available, how to engage in them, how to be a part of them, and to change social norms to say, hey, it's not just normal to have a coal-fired power plant burning near your house. It's also normal to have a solar array or a wind farm. And in fact, not only does it is it a, the new norm, but you're going to be healthier right now, right now, not five years or 10 years in the future for that change. And so, you know, we need to be talking about the health ramifications of climate change and this transition to renewable energy in a clearer, more specific more human way so that people understand, wow, acting on climate change right now actually helps me right now. It doesn't, it's not just about stopping further catastrophe. It's about the fact that when I wake up in the morning and step outside my house, house I am breathing polyaromatic cyclic hydrocarbons, which cause all different kinds of cancer. And I don't have to breathe those because if we had the subsidies from the government, if we had the support to proliferate EV systems, if we had all the things that we could be doing right now, this world could transition really fast, fast enough to avert catastrophic climate change. And we need to show people, we need to be talking to people about the existence of those possibilities and, and how to get there and how to get there fast. And we can't, and it's going to cost money, but just look at how much money one war costs. It, it's just, it's or so... one uh, wildfire. One wildfire. And the devastating impacts. And, and, and what happens in the news is they go on to the next fire. When I'm still right. wondering about the seven homes, towns that were destroyed last year, and where are those people now? And is it uninhabitable? And, and how their lives have, in many cases, been destroyed forever. And you and I know that. Yeah. If you are yeah. me... Um, I will probably never be homeless. You will probably never be homeless. But some of these people don't have that support structure, the, the family community that would help protect me. And it's, it's just the same people get it and get it and get it and get it when it comes to the impacts of climate change. So now I have a happy question to ask you. I do. There's <laughs> a, like I'm going down this rabbit hole of things are so screwed up. Um, do you have a proudest accomplishment and and I'm saying this from my heart, you have accomplished so much and gotten messages out that are so important. Do you have one that you're proudest of? <laughs> That's a, wow, that is a really hard question. To um, stump the guest question, I don't usually do that, but I thought of all the things you've done, like I'm proud that I'm getting to interview you so I can add that to my list. <laughs> but it's like, there's just so much 
we need so many more of you, in my opinion, to be out there because you do help bring about change, which is the whole game. That's that's what we all need to be about. How can we inspire people to action? So you don't even have to say one. You could say three if you want. Well, I, I think, I mean, what comes, I don't really know. I mean, I, I'm I'm the kind of person who just like keeps going. I just, right, right. I just you don't want to reflect like, on, I don't, sit on your laurels and say, well, I got that one nailed. <laughs> no, I mean, because I don't, right? I never have anything nailed. I just keep trying and evolving and, and, and get pushing it. and trying to do better. And I'm, nothing is ever good enough for me. It's, I'm sure it's a horrible, I'm sure it's kind of difficult to be around, but okay. Um, I mean, I think... Probably one of my, my uh, I wouldn't say proudest, but the things in my life that I valued the most is the is making this film I, I mentioned before, Sequestrata. But it's not, it wasn't really the making of the film um, that I'm proud of or I, I value. It was more the experience of it. Um, Got it. You know, because making that film was very dangerous. It was, we shot that film in the context of three different police, all with machine guns and massive protest and controversy in a town in the middle of the Amazon where nobody would have cared if uh, one of us had gotten shot. Now, they might have cared because, you know, I'm American, my collaborator is Korean-American, so that would have drawn attention. But it was it was actively unsafe. I look back and I'm kind of like, was that smart? I don't know. But the, the, <laughs> Were you nuts? The point, right? <laughs> yeah, maybe. I mean, my mother was very concerned. Um, but the point being that, like, we really, each one of us, it, it, we, I mean, the, what I want to do with my life is to live on the edge in a way that I am always taking the biggest risk I can to make the biggest difference. Wow. Because changing things is always about taking risk and, and you know, putting our lives on the line, essentially, and, and in any number of ways. There's lots of ways to do that, be it disagreeing with your boss and doing something that you could get fired for, if it's speaking out about something that, you could be harassed for it, whatever it is. And each one of us have our own way to do it. And in the process of making that film, you know, our lead, we had two leads, Tim Blake Nelson, who was in Where, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And a, a lot of other films, a lot of other films. Uh, and then our female lead was a, a teenage indigenous girl, Kamojata is her name. And we started shooting with her when she was 12. We street cast her and she was so quiet. And by the time we were done shooting with her, she was 15. And I felt like the process of making the movie with her taught her to have a voice in a right. way that she might not have otherwise. Like she saw me, she saw me as a female director having a voice. And, you know, we putting her in front of the camera gave her a voice or offered her an opportunity to exercise her voice in a way she wouldn't have otherwise. And I didn't expect that when we started to make the film. And seeing that, I felt like this is what I'm really here to do, is to help other people tell their story, have a voice, like become who it is that they are, are here to become, because that's what it's all about, right? It's 
you know, this transformation we all have to go through to address climate change, it's not a technical transformation. No. It's a spiritual, right. emotional, yes. character transformation. And, you know, I think for me, that film, making that film was that for me and hopefully to some degree for her as well. What a beautiful answer. And I mean that sincerely. And it's um, making films is a whole nother can of worms, whole nother enchilada, whatever you want to say. And I've been... I'm friends with some filmmakers. One woman came on the trip with me to Ecuador and she was working on studying sexual abuse in cultures all around the world. And it was very interesting to be with her because the tribe that we are working with, the Achuar, I honestly don't think there is any. And I mean that sincerely. Mm. For me to say that mm -hmm. in the work that I do, it's such a, a, a heinous, out-of-body experience concept for them because they're they live in the village and they protect each other. And that's what is, you know, their survival is based on the dependency they have on each other. And it's, she was, she was really digging and digging and digging. And we got to talk to some girls and it was like deer in the headlights. Are you kidding me? So we'll see. She's still working that film, but getting the funding. And then once you get the funding, getting it completed and then to, oh, to get it so in hard. film festivals. It's like, it's so oh, hard. you know. And it's like, oh my goodness. I'm glad I just decided to, to have a kick-ass podcast because yes, as, as, as crowded the space, it's not like trying to get a film produced. So no. I have two more really important questions. And like to me, the time is flying, but what gives you hope? It sounds to me like you do have some hope and you know how much CO2 is already up there <laughs> stored already that's causing some of this extreme weather. And there are days when I admit it's hard for me to have hope. I want to read a mystery novel and stay in bed under the covers. But I get up like you do and say, how can I make a difference today for Mother Earth? So what gives you hope? I mean, I think fundamentally I'm an optimist and I look for the good things everywhere that exist. But... I don't know. I, I kind of have a, a long-term view about this, what I see as a global transformation that we're undergoing. I, it, it's, you know, it's my experience, my own life, and I think this is pretty universal, that we don't change unless we're forced. I know, and I know. we're being forced. We're being forced. So oh. it's, as painful as it is, it's for a reason. It's for, in a way, I mean, it's totally self-inflicted and unnecessary, Having said that, most much change is, and we are doing it to ourselves, and it is going to force us to become a humanity we've never imagined. And I believe a humanity that's much more beautiful, racially uh, equal, gender equal. You know, it's going to become something, uh, a, a world and a humanity and a global society that most of us cannot even begin to imagine. And I. I don't think we'd get there if it weren't for this hell we're putting ourselves through, as unfortunate <laughs> yeah. as that is. I don't either. I don't think anything would change. <laughs> no, because we don't, right? It's we like don't. you have to wait till you're pinned to the wall. Right. And you're like, I'm okay, good. okay, yeah, I'll, I'm do it. Good. I'll do it, I'll do it. Right, right. Well, <laughs> so that's kind of my long view. So that's, But that's good. I mean, it's, and when you're me, it's kind of interesting because I go into people's houses and I want to know what kind of toilet paper they use because... I'm saying, well, you should be using who gives a crap or some ethically sourced toilet paper. So once again, I repeat, I am the person that some people don't want at their parties anymore because it's like, it's as simple as, yeah, the toilet paper you use really matters and affects global warming and climate change and all that stuff. So I don't say it all the time. 
Um, so is there anything else that you would like to share or like our listeners to know or some great upcoming um, release? It's your last moment to shine more or put a spotlight on something you want us to know about. I mean, I guess the only thing I haven't really talked about is uh, this this new venture I'm working on called Resilience Entertainment, which is essentially a a development and production studio to make more of these hopeful, empowering, realistic stories about climate change that will help us really move the needle as quickly as we can, but that also, you know, are about the human spirit as much as they are about climate change. So that's what I'm, I'm super excited about at the moment and bringing stories to light that I think there are a lot of people who are waiting to hear them, waiting to see them, and they just haven't been made yet. Because I think there are a lot of people out there asking the kinds of questions that you're asking me, like, what do we do? And right, right. what are the risks and all of that? And they need they need that information, but they also need them in a way that they will be able to hear. And to me, that's great stories. So that's what I'm... Um, I'm putting my energy behind at the moment and very hopeful that we'll make a big difference. You will make a big difference, I'm sure of it. And and we will have you back down the road because our I'm so proud of how our listenership is growing and how, you know, how many subscribers we have on Spotify and the numbers and all of these things that matter not to my ego, but to the impact of our message. The more people right. who hear these things especially in our tribe, the more committed, excited, and hopefully engaged they get. So I have I'm some so laughs. Glad. Yeah, I know. It's really wonderful. And I mean, having been in it 14 years, I think yep. my first show had like 60 listeners. But guess oh. what? I kept showing up. and um, You stuck with it. Yep, then it was 600, and then it was 6,000, and then it was 15,000, wow. and then it was 20,000, and then it was 25,000. It's like, keep coming. So oh it's God. just... It, Podcasting is a crowded space, but I've certainly, my team and I have worked hard to get people like you, get your voices out there to other people that might not be finding you someplace else. So my last words are very simple and to the point, and they are thank you, Sabrina McCormick. Thanks for your commitment to our planet, to women, to pregnant women from the most at-risk populations who need your voice, who need to find their voice. Thank you for your storytelling and your passion. And thank you for taking the time to be with us today because your message matters. It's my my pleasure. And thank you. And thank you for having me and the really insightful questions. And I look forward to coming back. I look forward to it too. Everybody said, Gina, you're going to love her. And I mean, they were right. Anybody that touched you from my team said, oh my gosh, you're going to love her. She's so amazing. So um, it's been an honor to spend time with you today and and to hear about the work. So, And my final thanks is always to you, our listeners, because without you, there would be no us. Thank you for being a part of my world. And thank you, Dr. Sabrina McCormick, for now being a part of my world. 